Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is The Stacks Book Club Day. We are joined again by Ingrid Rojas Contreras, the author of The Man Who Could Move Clouds, and you can catch Ingrid's first appearance on the show back on our August 3rd episode. Ingrid is here to talk about our book club pick, which is How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, a collection of essays by Alexander Chi. It's Chi's own meditation on creating art, life, politics, and how all of that intersects with his identities as a gay Korean-American artist and activist. Through the collection, Ingrid and I talk about the relationship between the reader and the writer. We talk about what it means to live a life well-lived and how Chi cleverly can make just about anything about writing. Oh, And make sure you listen through the end of the episode to find out what our book club pick for September will be. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love this show and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. You'll get bonus episodes of the show, like our most recent one with author Tia Williams. You'll get access to our lively Discord community, discounts on merch, and of course, you'll get to be part of The Stacks monthly virtual book club. If those perks sound exciting to you or you just really want to show your love for this little black woman run indie book podcast, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. A quick thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Maria Andrea Belmont and Maya Wellbell. Thank you both so much. And thank you, as always, to the incredible, wonderful, extremely lovely Stacks Pack. And now it's time for my book club chat with Ingrid Rojas Contreras on Alexander Chi's collection of essays. How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. All right, everyone, it is the Stacks Book Club Day. I am joined again by the wonderful, talented, creative, exciting Ingrid Rojas Contreras, who is the author of The Man Who Could Move Clouds. Ingrid, welcome back to the Stacks. Hi, so wonderful to see you twice in a row. I know. It's a dream. Um, So today's book club day, we're talking about how to write an autobiographical novel by Alexander Chi. It's a collection of essays. I always forget to do this. So I'm trying to make a really good point of telling people what the book's about. It's a collection of essays about Alexander Chi's life and also about creating art and in his case, writing. So it's sort of a guide to writing your own novel, if you will, but also just like approaching writing and then also essays about his experiences from studying abroad in Mexico to planting a rose garden in New York City to being an activist during, you know, the AIDS crisis in San Francisco. So it's sort of a lot of different things. (sighs) That's always my least favorite part of the episode. (laughs) Okay. And then this is where we really get started. Just kind of briefly, will you tell me what you thought of this book? Yeah, it's, I think that one of just hearing you describe it was making me um, look back and think about what I really loved about this collection of essays. And it is that sometimes, you know, like you read that essay about Alex Chi planting the rose garden and you really kind of get into the roses and how is this garden going to look? And then eventually at some point, halfway through the essay, you start to realize that it is also about, it's an essay about making a life which can Mm. also be like an essay about, 
you know, like, how do you, how do you make space in the world? How do you want to be in the world? Like, what does that look like? Um, and creative practice. So I feel like all of these essays are about finding yourself and they're about, you know, how do you create your life? And that part of creativity that is also art making flourishes throughout the the collection. And I mm-hmm. just really love this book for that reason, because it, it just talks about life and creativity and just how the two can't be separated. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's just something that I uh, just kind of just really wowed me about this book. What about you? Okay. What did you think? Okay. This is sort of a disclaimer, everybody. I am not a writer. I am shockingly not interested in writing. I'm not interested in the art process making as much as I'm interested in the art. Mm. So for me, this book was really hit or miss depending on the essay. Now, I want to say this very clearly. Alexander Chi is a fucking phenomenal writer. Yes. Because I was reading these essays, sitting there being like, I really don't care about this at all. And yet here I am still deeply invested in how you're going to tell this story or how you're going to write. So for me, like there were definitely essays that I really loved and connected to, but those were the ones that were more based on his experiences and his Mm -hmm. life and less like instructive about writing, less about like the decision to go to Iowa's writer's workshop. Like I just, I don't, it doesn't mean anything to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know So it was a difficult read because while I liked the writing and I liked a lot of the essays, some of them I was like, I'm so bored here because this is just not a thing that I'm curious about. And I'm, I'll be really excited to hear what people listening to the show think because I know so many people are writers or are yeah. interested in the actual writing process in a way that I know this is going to sound weird. I'm just not, even yeah, though I talk no, so I've, much about the process. Yeah, I get that. And I think that with this book, it's trying to imagine what talking to about writing could look like and that it's yeah. not uh, a full, like, this is how you create a novel or, you know, like talk about talking about craft in that way, but it is still kind of a craft book. And then instead it's talking about creative process and life. Yeah. So I, I, I wonder if those parts of the book that you were kind of like losing interest in, probably I think those are geared for the, for the writer who is like reading and, and who is wondering how does it all happen and what does it look like and what are, what are, you know, what, what is the life like? I think. Yeah. How many times yeah. have you read this book? Probably three times, I would say. And when you read it for the first time, had you published any books yet? Yes, I had published, I had published my novel um, by okay. the time that I, that I read it. Yeah. And I think the first time that I read it, there's like a chapter that's called how to write an autobiographical novel. No, wait, it's a later one. It's like the list of... Oh, a um, hundred things about writing a novel. Yeah. And that one just like really... Oh, yeah, how to write an autobiographical novel. And then it just... Mm. It lists all... It's like on page 244. And it just lists all kinds of things about what it means when when you're writing a novel and you're borrowing from life. And there was this line that just like really hit me. And it's just like the end of that part. Ready ready to steal as much of your life as you let them, more than what they already have taken. One last price hidden behind the rest. Write fiction about your life and pay with your life at least three times. Here is the axe. I just like really felt that and just coming from having written a novel that was autobiographical and how much, how strange it is that you borrow from life and then you end up you know, and it's fiction, but you actually end up putting so much truth in the mm. in the novel. I just I felt like, yeah, that that part just like really I remember reading that and just like sitting there for a while, <laughs> like taking that in. That's the thing I really want to talk about is writing fiction about your life taking things from your life. And then the thing that was really interesting to me, it was in the other one, the autobiography of my novel, which was a little bit earlier. And he talks about 
you know, this whole process. And at the end, he talks about this prisoner who like has written to him because his autobiographical novel is Edinburgh and it's about, you know, a, a young person who has is molested and it's like kind of like layers on layers. But it the person who wrote to him as a prisoner who was in jail for be for having molested a child. And Alex says, you know, uh, they took something from the novel that was different than what I had intended. And so I'm really curious about that for you and a, a person who's also written this like sort of autobiographical novel. What's it like when someone takes from your book not what you had hoped or intended they would take from your book? <laughs> um, I think that for me, like the the comments that I that I received where it where it, it feels like it's not what I intended are when people tell me that they've that they've learned so much about Colombia as if it <laughs> as if the novel was kind of like a history book or as if it was right, right, right. there to kind of like educate them. And I, and, you know, and I, and I think that's, I, it doesn't bother me that someone, you know, because of course that would happen that you write a book and then different people are just going to get different things from it. Um, But it is very different than what I wanted the reader to, to walk away from um, Mm. or to, sorry, to, to walk away with from reading the novel. And I, you know, I, I wrote it trying to understand you know, what is, what is like this very complicated relationship that you can have with someone in a country that's been, um, you know, at war for decades and what happens when that violence kind of creeps in and gets closer and then poisons that relationship and then what happens to those two people. And that's what I was trying to, to study and look at and to um, really explore with the novel. And it was, you know, something that, because, you know, that novel is also autobiographical for me and it involves, um, a kidnap and, uh, an attempted kidnap, uh, kidnapping that it just, it was just like really hard for me to go there. Right. And mm-hmm. so then you have this whole personal experience alone in your room where you're like doing this hard thing and then you publish and then someone says, I read, I learned so much about the history. You know, right. just, it's just like not quite, <laughs> not quite what you You're were like, like okay. intending. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, that, okay. So in, in the one that you mentioned, how to write an autobiograph- autobiographical novel, the first line is you only tell the truth. That's the first sentence of that essay. And, you know, as a person who certainly loves art in all in most different forms and, you know, like thinks about art and likes to talk about art and critique art and all of these things. I was really struck by that sentence because I kept thinking like, what does that even mm. mean in art? What does telling the truth even mean in art? Like, isn't part of art that you're allowed not to tell the truth or that you're supposed to not tell the truth or that even in nonfiction, like that there's some rendering of the world through the artist's viewpoint. And I just, I, that really struck me. And and then I started thinking like, can I tell when a book is not being truthful? Not that the facts are untrue, but like that it's not actually true to the, mm. to the author. And like, and I wonder like how, how do you even, like for me, not that I'm like an artist, but for this show, there are definitely interviews on this show or episodes of this show where I know that I was faking the funk where like I wasn't being truthful or like I wasn't really locked in in the way that I feel is truth-ish, truth-like. And so, and I don't always know that I'm doing it until I listen back or like I don't always know, but I think about writers and you have an editor and you have this other person who's telling you what they're getting from it. Is it hard to tap into the truthy part? Is it hard to like stop lying to yourself? Like, how does that work? It is. Yeah, I think it is really hard. Um, Alex G in this book, I think the first essay talks a lot about uh, seeing yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, The one about being in Mexico. Being in Mexico. Um, And it's, um, I think. The curse. Yeah, the curse. Um, And it's, I think, an essay at some point he's where he says, I was a boy who was, who was trying to, 
lose himself in, in other people as a way mm. to see himself. Um, so I think that kind of, uh, that kind of self-awareness, both to really understand, you know, what, how you're living your life, um, and mm-hmm. what those, the hidden part of what you're doing. I think that's the really hard part to do. Um, but I do think that whether it's fiction or nonfiction, that as a writer, uh, you absolutely need to have that kind of self-awareness. And when it, how do you get it? How do you get it? I think that it's, um, I think that you don't look away, you know? So like Mm. the parts when you, if you cat in those kind of uncomfortable moments where you're like, Oh, I'm catching myself being vain in this moment. We tend Mm. to just kind of shut it down and just like not look any further. You kind of try to forget about it. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. and you do and I th- I feel in your brain what we want to do is to say anyway and then mm-hmm. you know move on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, I mean I think this is just good good training too to be a person in the world where and for writers I think it's so crucial because it it allows you to write the truth um, to just linger in those moments actually. So like to know mm. your own discomfort as you're going through the world and you notice something about yourself and to not look away. And maybe, you know, maybe in that moment we look away, but later when we're able to to really look at that moment and really kind of think about it. Yeah. And I with with fiction, the 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 part about the truth is so interesting because in uh, Alex Chi uh, talks about how he, you know, uh, I think he's he's referencing at some point he's in a in a book club or a book meeting and someone asks him why if this is autobiographical, why didn't you write it as memoir? Right. And he's very confused by that question. Um, and he later says, I, I, I write fiction because it's the things that I can't say in my life. Right. Mm. And so he's also, I think he was also talking about uh, Lori Moore and how she was talking about the comfort of the mask. And I think fiction can be that. It, it's, it's a type of writing that allows you to put on a mask or allows you to make space for the things that you can't say in your actual life. And so you need this other way of talking about it. And then you can tell the truth. So it's, it is kind of like truth via a mask. Um, but yeah, oftentimes it's like the only way that you can, that you can tell it or that you're comfortable telling it. Right. It's like the Halloweenification of writing. (laughs) You know, it's like people who like love Halloween because they get to like put on a costume and like act freaking crazy because they can't do it in their life. Yeah. Then you get to like tap into like whatever, you know, instincts or primal feelings or whatever it is on Halloween yeah. which is why I hate Halloween I'm like Ugh, get a grip go to therapy what is your <laughs> do you, did you ever have a fa- favorite costume that you had gosh no I really I like have dressed up for Halloween like twice in the last <laughs> my favorite costume so I have I have two-year-old twins and for their first Halloween I dressed them up as the two popes like that oh, movie when there was two popes uh-huh. and so that was that's really, really iconic to me <laughs> Got a lot of laughs. Um, so that's a really, that was a good one. Uh, but I haven't dressed up in 10 years, probably. Yeah. I'm just not into it. I always tell people, I think part of it is I went to theater school. So oh, I, I grew up yeah. dressing. I was an actress. I was a dancer. We always wore costumes. So for me, yeah. Halloween's just like a chore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I understand. That. As a kid, though, I loved. I was a hal- I was a hula dancer like three times. Really into it. Pre cultural appropriation days when I didn't know that like now I'd get in trouble. I was like seven, and my dad would make me wear. Cause I'm from Oakland. It's cold at, in Halloween. Make me wear a white turtleneck underneath my like coconut bra. Uh-huh. So all the pictures are really good. <laughs> Do you that. have a favorite Halloween costume? Um, I think the last one. That I did was I um, I dressed as AOC, um, oh, and I wanted genius. it to be like the uh, the Republican nightmare, mm. and that's what I was going for. Um, that's pro- you probably looked a lot like her. You did like I do. It was like very easy. It was very yeah. easy to like to transition into her look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I've always wanted to be Lisa Turtle from. 
uh, say by the bell. That's one that I always say I'm gonna nice. do and I never do and make my husband be screech because he's a white boy. Yeah. But I don't know. One one year, maybe. Anyways, yes. whoa, really got <laughs> off topic. I love it here. Um okay. I wanna stay on this topic of like the reader and the writer because I feel like that was like what was most interesting to me as yeah. the reader. And obviously you're a writer. One of the things that like I talk about a lot is the review, like the review of the of the book, of the art, and how I think that the review is not for the author. It's like the least for the author of all people. And I'm wondering like what I, I want to know if you read reviews, first of all. And I want to know like how you negotiate that feedback when your work is in the world, because it might be valuable in some ways, but also like there's not a lot you can do about it. It's published. It's done. So I'm sort of wondering about your relationship yeah. to reviews. Um, I do read reviews. Um, I, I used to write um, reviews a lot. I was um, the book columnist for uh, KQD, which is a yeah, local yeah. Um, and NPR place. And one of the things as I started to write reviews is that I just I really like the reviews that are completely personal and don't try to pretend that it's an objective, you know, Mm. this is like my objective opinion of this book and I'm going to pretend, I'm going to write it like it's the truth. What I'm writing is the truth. Um, And I really loved writing reviews that were kind of like half essay, half reviews. So they were about like, this is what's happening in my life. And this is what I, when I read, when I read that line, I was in the train and this is what happened. Mm. Um, And I, and so I, I think that feels more honest to me too, Mm. because the way that you, you know, wherever you are in your life and whatever is happening around you as you're reading something affects how you're reading that book. Right. So, yeah. So I think through that experience of just writing reviews for many years that I I can read a review and not take it personally. Mm. Or I can read a review and just, yeah, just take it as like, oh, yeah, this is this one person's opinion of this. And I I think that what I, I also agree with you that it's not for me, that it's not, that this is not a, a thing that's for me, but it's more a conversation that maybe I'm, I can listen in on if I mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. about what is being said. And as you read more and more reviews, you start to get this sense of like, oh, this is kind of the conversation that is arising. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think if there's like multiple, if there's multiple reviews that are saying like, this is a problem, then I think maybe that's something to look at. Um, And then otherwise you might just get a lot of reviews that are like, I didn't like this. And then someone else might say like, I love this part. (laughs) And so then, and so then that tells you, that the book has a very specific audience and that the book is not for everyone. And I think right. books are not for everyone. If it, right. if, if like a single book was made to be read by, I don't even know what that would be. It would just be like a blank book. <laughs> like, It'd be like the alphabet or something. Yeah. <laughs> like not even. Yeah. Um, interesting. Were you, when you reviewed for them, was it anonymous? No, I, 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 yeah, it's, I put my name on it and everything. Did you ever feel stressed out about having to write or like writing something about negative things about a book? If if I felt too negative about a book, I just wouldn't write a review. Mm. And I yeah, I was just often thinking about how much of, you know, when when a book is published, how much of a miracle that feels like because it's mm. so hard from you know, conception until it's published and then everything else is just so difficult about that that I didn't feel like I, yeah, if, if I just was not into a book, um, that I just, I just wouldn't review it. And it would have to be that the book was doing something politically questionable that I would, that I would write a review about it then, just because I felt like, uh, then it's something that needs to be said. Right. Right. That doesn't have to do with me just not liking the book. Right. Yeah. When you hear back from people at book events or a review or whatever, and they like, how important is it to you that the reader gets what you're trying to do? Because like, I think a lot about like reading in school and like, it'd be like, oh, we're reading 
one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And then the teacher would be like, the author is clearly like, like some theme. And every time you see a bed sheet, it means rebirth or whatever, something crazy. (laughs) And you spend a whole semester like digging into these like little nuggets. In doing this podcast, I have found out that a lot of authors that that is like made up that like a lot of those things are not the authors like doing it on purpose. It's like an accident that people read into. And then some of it is on purpose. But like, how important is it to you that like we see what you're doing, that we understand like the theme or like the little nuggets and stuff? Or or is that for you? I think um, I th- I think it's fun. It's really fun when somebody notices. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I think when, when my novel came out, one of the things that I hadn't talked about yet in public was my process and that I was doing an, an internal transliteration in order to write, write the language so that it felt like on the inside internally, it was Spanish and that on the outside it was English. So I was trying okay. to use like, um, Spanish grammatical structure I and I was trying to kind of like push the 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 grammar of English so that it kind of sounded like Spanish. You would only know this if you if you spoke both languages well. Right, right, right. And yeah, so I uh, was going about tour, and then there was this one uh, woman who who told me, like, pulled me aside and told me, like, okay, when I was reading the book, it was like. These mm-hmm. are thought in Spanish, but you're like translating them and writing them into English. And I was just like <laughs> so overjoyed that she had noticed this. And I was right. and I, it was like the best thing that happened that month. I was like, oh, my God, like someone um, got this thing. I don't I don't think that I need anybody, you know, everyone to notice. But it, mm-hmm. it felt like very good when this one person noticed that. <laughs> I, I love that. Okay. Um, okay. Wait, I want to get back to the book because I'm like going deep dive on all these things that came like a lot of this stuff came up for me as I was reading it, though it's mm-hmm. not like expressly in the book. But yeah. I just was like what the book made me think about was how much like thinking Alexander Chi does about writing and like how intense he is about his intentions for his work. And like his, his, and some of it is I'm like thinking, is he thinking this before he's writing or is he realizing this is what he's done after he's written the thing? Mm -hmm. Which to me, I work more the second way. Like I'll do something and then I'll be like, oh, I did this. That was because, you know, but all of that is, is really interesting to me. And so a lot of questions came up, but there's also all these other essays, which I'm now realizing hearing you talk about, they're like about other things that have to do with writing. But like, I didn't really pick up on that. I'm like, these are just really good stories. <laughs> um, but my favorite one, my favorite essay was After Peter, mm. the one about his friend and like one time lover who passed away um, from AIDS. And your book does this. Um, there are a few books or writers who do this, but when a writer can capture a loved one, especially someone who's passed away, I think that that is truly my favorite genre of writing. Mm-hmm. Like when they can capture the essence of this person and explain to us while they're why they're important without being like, Peter was like this and was so important to me. Right. You know, like your grandfather, who you didn't spend time much time with on this earth, is such a huge character in your book. Mm-hmm. And like we fall in love with him because you love him. Right. And like, that's the same thing with Peter is like, I, I just, I was so taken by that essay from the beginning. I just was like, I love Peter mm-hmm. and I, I miss Peter. And like, I don't know that for me, that was like the big, the, the big like essay that really made me be like, holy shit, Alexander Chi is a master of like writing. I love that essay. Um, and I, I feel like it's a, it's a very beautiful essay and it, the way that it's layered to me is, is so wonderful because it's, it is about this relationship to this, uh, to a person who was like a once lover, a friend, um, who is dying and is not kind of sharing that with, with people. And then it's also, I think, you know, the, what also the, the essay is kind of thinking about memory 
and you know sharing sharing life with someone and the it's, I don't know if it's in that essay or, or in other essays, but the idea of writing as a way to, you know, have something have a little bit of immortality so that it can mm-hmm. kind of be like saved and passed on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think the first time that we see Peter, it's also like a, a just a really beautiful, very kind of stunning description of someone. Yeah. And the idea of like how it's like sort of about legacy, right? Like how does, how does someone live on? And what this, like what came to me when reading this one towards the end was like, there's no way that Peter could have known what he meant to Alexander Chi, especially like all these years after his death, that he would be this figure in this book about writing and craft and Mm -hmm. art. And like, I wonder if like, Alexander Chi made a big enough impression on Peter that he would have ever even imagined that this thing was possible. And I just, ah, it like makes me sad and really happy. And like, it just like, you know, that feeling of like when you have a lot of feelings and like you feel it like coming up behind your eyes and like in your chest, it gives me that feeling of like overcomeness by who we each like get to be mm-hmm. and how like how the small figures in our life can become very important to us or how we become important to other people or like how one person's path that crosses yours can become like some sort of a muse or I, I, there's just like so much in this one. And then there's also like the politics in this one that I really loved and like and like seeing it obviously in this time of COVID and now monkeypox and like seeing what they were going through and how they were dealing with loss and like how we are and aren't dealing with loss now. And like, I, this one just was like so, so full. And then, uh, this is like a little anecdote, but we have a family friend who's like an older white guy who mm-hmm. watches Bill Maher, which it tells you exactly who that person is. And we were talking about, I don't remember what, and he was saying how he was watching some some gay man on Bill Maher talk about how, you know, the trans activists are hurting gay people uh-huh. because they want all people to say the right pronouns and they're really pushy and they're mean and they're aggressive. And that he said that, you know, the gay rights movement was always about being funny and we were always like down for a laugh and a good time. And when this person told me this, I obviously was like, that's so fucking ahistorical. This is bullshit. It's homophobic. I hate it. Or it's transphobic. I hate it, whatever. And then later that week I read this essay and it was like a reminder that a, there was so much rage as there is in all of these movements, but also that's good. Like that that's the right response. And like being funny or whatever this guy was saying is not real. And it's not it's so ahistorical. It made me so mad. But yeah. I just I loved reading about this moment because I was like, I knew when I heard that that it was wrong. But then reading this one and 1989, the other essay, uh, I was mm-hmm. like, this shit is so, like the fact that people are allowed to forget all of this and pretend yes. like it was just like gay people were funny and they were in musicals. It's like, yeah. no, <laughs> gay people were dying and devastated and in a rage as they should be. And it wasn't just gay men, you know, yeah. like yeah. the gay rights movement wasn't just gay men. It was trans people. It was, like, I don't know. The whole thing made me so mad. And this essay just felt so like validating in a lot of ways. So I, yeah. don't I just I love Peter. Yeah. Um, I loved reading to just all about the 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 protesting and all the actions that mm-hmm. were being taken alongside with, you know, like the having lovers and like dressing up and mm-hmm. going yeah, out. Girl. And girl. <laughs> yeah. Um because I, I think you you really as a reader, you you it it really feels like you can step into what that time was like. Yes. And as you're saying, like you can really feel the rage and I just I found myself admiring the actions that they were taking mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and I think this was when was it through act up that the yeah. that the political actions were were being taken um and there's well there's, some of it was and then some of it was like other groups because other act groups, up was yeah. like we can't do that and they were like <laughs> okay we'll just make this other group called yeah. smacked up and we'll yeah. do it <laughs> <laughs> um 
Yeah, but that one where they where they in San Francisco, like they printed the first page of what would like a mock up of the Chronicle, and then instead they're mm-hmm. saying like how many people have died um, in the AIDS crisis, and they were they but they were kind of like uh, I think he described the image as like it was it was made to look like it was a not, you know disaster um, right. happening, and they paid for the <laughs> to open like the newspaper box, and then you know, put that front page sheet over the actual right. newspaper and then put it back. And I just, I loved reading about that moment so much and all of the other actions, the political actions that were being taken, because it, I, I I think that it just really allows you to see like all that we're not doing yet. Yeah. You know, like all that, yeah. or just gives you that imagination of, you know, we have injustices and we have also the power to to dream up like how are we gonna what are we gonna do and what does that look like? Yeah. And you know, so yeah. it's just it's so wonderful to me that you're that this is a collection of essays that is 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 about writing and, and art making, but it's it's so much you know about life and um right. well because yeah. I think I think ultimately, right, that's the point of the essay collection is that you can do all the writing stuff and you can, you know, take a class and you can get a master's and you can do all these things. But if you don't live a life that's full of people and things and you aren't able to see the world and like, like, for example, the Rose essay, I did not care for that one. It was a little a little too in the weeds. I love that one. (laughs) Oh, my God. No, I was not into it. I was not into it. But, but I respect that essay because he really took a garden and wrote like 50 pages about it and like <laughs> could see all these pieces, right? And like that that is fodder for his work, right? Like, because I think so many people think to be an artist, you have to be focused only on the art. And this book shows that like, there is no Alexander Chi without the work that he did in activism or being in the bookstore or going to Mexico on this exchange visit, right? That, that all of that is the, you know, to carry on the rose metaphor, all of that is the soil from which the essays grow. Mm -hmm. And I just think like, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure this has always been true in all times when people were creating, but it feels to me so much right now that people are so like subspecialized and focused on the work that they do that they don't realize like that you have to also go live. You also have to like experience to really understand if you want to create, if you want to make things like you can't just sit at the computer. Yeah. That's not actually the job. The job is to live and interpret and then, and then create the thing. Yeah. So so like the essays that I didn't care for as much like about his life, I still was really like intrigued by them because I was like, oh, you're you're doing things here with these roses. But I don't care about roses. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Can I tell you what I love about that one essay? Yes, of course. Um, I, I think that this is an essay where you I when I when I first read it, I didn't. I wasn't super interested in roses as well. And now anytime that I see a rose, I can't but like help of <laughs> but think of this essay and Alex G. What I love about this essay is just that, you know, it's it's building a garden in a time of flight, in a time of his life where Alex G feels a little bit lost. Um, mm-hmm. And it's kind of like trying to root down. Mm. And it's just kind of like a creation of, of space um, and trying to kind of like claim space. And then there's this thing about um, looking at the word rosary and how it um, initially yeah. meant like a rose garden, and now we it means prayer. And to me, there's there's a way in which we're we're talking about roses, but we're just talking about writing mm-hmm. and how when you you know like whatever when you do like a, a practice like writing where, where it involves so much energy and it involves so much internal work that is invisible. It, you know, mm-hmm. starts to feel like it, it's that kind of repetitive prayer-like activity that you're doing. Right. Um, and one of the things that I loved after, like, uh, reaching the end of the essay was, like, the how, how it ends. 
he, you know, he has to like move away from that apartment building and like oh, leave right. the roses yeah. behind. And he just kind of like feels very bad about like leaving them. And he has this, he's like moves across the city and he says like, I can, I can feel them still, the sap pulsing in their veins, pushing their way to the sky. But the, the creature that grew legs and walked away from the garden was me. I was not their gardener. They were mine. Mm. Um, and I just, I love this idea of um, you, some of the things that you do in your life, you think that you're the active doer of those things when mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. those things are tending after you. And I, and I mm. find that it's the same way when you're, when you're writing a book, at times it feels like you're just creating this, this book and you're creating this material yeah you feel like you're creating something and then it, there's a way in which the book ends up changing who you are so in a way like the book mm. ends up kind of changing you um so it's just like i just i love the way that the rose garden thinking about roses and then thinking about like how you want to how what are ways in which you can kind of make your life and make it kind of a beautiful mm-hmm. place for you to be there I just feel like that essay does all of it. It just like thinks about how to how to how to build space, how to like tend to your imagination, how to like lose yourself in an obsession, and then how to like allow that to change you. It's just also so beautiful. I love that we just we like have such different <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's one. what's cool about this book is like even if you're like me or not a writer, like there's different ways to enter this book, like different, I feel like different essays are going to speak to you. It's I, I also think the reason I asked how many times you've read it is I feel like different essays probably speak to you each time mm. in a different way because they're like so vast. And, you know, I was also really struck by, well, actually, let's take a quick break. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N 
noom.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back. I'll tell you now. <laughs> I was really struck by um, how many jobs he'd had, yes. has had, because I always joke that I'm a person with no career, but with have had many jobs. And I sort of like say that in a self-deprecating way, but I was like, Alexander Chi's like a serious person and look <laughs> at all the jobs he's had. And like, he still is a serious person. So that's wonderful for him and for me as inspiration. But it was like, he was a cater waiter. He was, you know, he's a teacher. He's a writer. He was like doing just like a million things. I just thought it was so, so fantastic. Did you have a, do you have, is the rosary one your favorite? Um, or do you have a different one that's your favorite? Let me look at the, um, I also really love, I mean, I love Girl mm-hmm. um, and the Querent, which is the tarot one. Oh my God, that's the other one I hated. That's the other one you hated. <laughs> yeah, I hated that one. I think maybe for that I have to one, be honest, I don't think I finished it. Yeah, I think for that one, maybe you have to be into tarot. Because otherwise, uh, yeah, it's just like, the, you know, he's just yeah. describing cards and you're like, I don't know what this means. But for That's me, exactly I'm like, right. oh, I know exactly what this means. And I, yeah, I have like a different uh, entry into that one. So that one's not about anything bigger. It's just about tarot. I, mean, I was hoping you would explain it yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I've, I've tried this where he says, um, well, so that one is about, um, I think it's about wanting to know the future and how mm-hmm. that can kind mm-hmm. of, come from a place of fear, but how wanting to know the future is its own obstacle. Like it, it means mm. that you actually start to tamper with your future by, by being mm. kind of like actively trying to predict it. And yeah, I, th- I think it's also like a little bit about writing in the way that uh, when, when you write fiction, sometimes you're writing into a life that you didn't live or like, um, what could have happened? Sometimes it's like, it starts with what happened and then it goes into what could have happened. And it's a little bit of, it does feel like a little bit of fortune telling where you're trying to see someone's life and trying to understand everything about them. Yeah. So I I really kind of like see a connection between when when you're trying to give someone a reading and you don't know anything about their lives, but you have these cards and then you, you try to tell them a story from what you see in front of you. And I, I think that's very similar, has a very similar energy to like when you sit down to write and you are trying to think of a character and you're trying to imagine what what it is in their lives that is turmoil or like what what, what are the new things that are coming in and what are the things that are leaving them. So, yeah, so I think it's, I think all of the essays are, are about writing, but it's just, you know, in the, in the background, they're about writing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, some of them, and then some of them are, it's definitely in the foreground. Yeah. Um, in the essay, The Writing Life, where he talks about his like fancy teacher in college, whose class he goes to and, and she t- gives him all the things. I loved this idea of where he, where she says, you know, put all your deaths and your accidents up front where possible. I just love <laughs> where possible. I don't know. I'm such a rule follower and I'm not a where possible person. I'm a very like, it needs to happen here. But where possible just feels so great. I don't, I don't know why. But it's yeah, like, you can't always follow the guidelines. Yeah. Are you a, are you a rule followy person? I No, I am not. And I am also... When I teach, I also, you know, add things like this may or may not apply to you or to what you're writing. Um, Are you into your horoscope? Into my horoscope? I used to be. uh, Are you? I like. I don't know. I'm just curious what sign you are. I uh, I'm a Virgo uh, sun. But Uh, not rule following. This is Gemini Gemini rising. Okay. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> an Aries moon. So I feel okay. like, yeah, those two are just like not. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, the it's just that the when you have rules, I just don't think that it applies to all kinds of cultures right. of right. storytelling. So like, I think that if you come from another culture that are probably 
you're breaking a lot of the rules which are made for one for another culture so I just right. think it's just hard it's you know like the you can't write the book that is for everyone you right, can't have right, rules right. that will apply to everything it's just like not not possible right did you find like you were saying how you were you know playing with language in ways in your novel and, and we talked last time about sort of the structure of your book and kind of staying true to this Colombian cultural storytelling do you find that people were asking you to conform your work into an American palette? That's very air quotes. See, like, did you run up against this thing of like, no, I'm do I'm trying to do this. This is the way I'm trying to tell the story. It comes from like my Colombian experience, culture, upbringing, everything. And people are being like, but in America, we do this. <laughs> like, did you have to deal with that at all? I think I had to deal with that, I think, when I was a student. And did you get an MFA? I w yeah, I got an MFA and I went to Columbia College in Chicago. And I think that in in when I would bring a, a story to workshop and it would be set in Columbia, I the feedback that I would get on a story was like, what is this food that you mentioned? Or like, what is oh. the weather in the thing? Um, or like in this place? Or like, I don't know where this is. Can you say where this is? And so it, I think that just that just very quickly kind of taught me how writing is actually very political. Um, mm -hmm. And how when you have a reader who is outside from the culture and is kind of like insisting for you to bring the story to them or to like translate it and make it specifically for them. Mm -hmm. um, how that's something that happens a lot. And it is a political decision to say, no, you come to the story, right? Like right. you, the, the, I'm going to keep the center where it is and you like the reader needs to come to it. But I think over time, I just, I learned that if you just describe the work in that way, and you just say that at the beginning, whether mm. it's in in the classroom or whether it's you're like, you know, trying to place something with a magazine or you're trying to like have, an, you know, get an agent or talk to an editor about possibly doing something. That if you say that at the beginning, that it's it tends to not be an issue because then people mm. just it's like you're telling someone like this is how you're supposed to read it. And this is the right. political kind of stance that this work is taking. Um, yeah. And then I feel that after that, people are excited about it. Like it's almost like giving someone a key like, oh, right. this is so it's not going to be what I'm used to. It's going to be something else. And I think most people are very do want to 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 have a different experience reading. Well, and I feel like for me, like I don't I. I would rather have a different experience reading than read something that feels like a circle stuffed into a triangle. You know mm -hmm, what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I would like I just rather read a circle and just say it's a circle. Totally. I, like I'm capable of engaging with all sorts of shapes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like but when you try to jam it in there, then it feels like like I hate in books where it's like, you know, we went to we had like cornbread and then like cornbread is an African-American delicacy, yes. <laughs> you know, like grown from corn on the plantation and eaten yeah. often. I'm just like, I don't need all that. I have Google. Like, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. The thing. Oh, my gosh. Wait. One of the things in this book that was like mind blowing was when I think it's in the autobiography of my novel where Alexander talks about being his agent or his editor being like, you could be the first Korean American novelist. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, then Chang Rae Lee like wrote his book. So then mm -hmm. I was the first gay one in 1995. And I was like, yeah, wow. Yeah. Like, it's just not, it doesn't feel like it's that, it's long, not ago. that long ago. Like this is our, yeah. Like our, all of the all of the books that we're that we're having that are diverse and that are doing all of those things um, are you know not very yeah it wasn't that long ago yeah yeah like that there wasn't an Alexander Chi for Alexander Chi is just like a wild thought to me you mm -hmm. know like mm -hmm. I don't know I just I know it like we get reminders constantly especially like with the Oscars or like the Emmys like first blank to be nominated in blank. 
but to think about it like it's just really it's like very jarring mm-hmm. um it also made me think about like white people who write like having so much less anxiety about their work or like having or, or about anything that they create or write or make because like there's so much more room to fail because there isn't that pressure of like representing an entire group yeah. of people. Yeah. And what you're talking about, like not having to like give a pre-claimer to your work by being like, this is going to be different than what you've experienced person yes. with a small mind. Like <laughs> just all of that is just like so... I mean, it, it's frustrating. It is frustrating. And also, like, illuminating about where we are now, that we're yeah. not so far away from that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think this is what allows some writers to say that their work isn't political. Right. You know, just because you, it, I mean, all of that means is that you just don't have a political consciousness. Like, you're right. not and seeing. you have no relationship to history. Yeah, or you're not politics. seeing how you're fitting into the politics of of storytelling. Um, or you are seeing it, but you don't want to admit that yeah. it makes you a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, th- and yeah, it is, I think it is for writers of color, any, you know, minority writer that you do have to think about it and you do have to make pr- that part of the conversation. Um, but I, I don't know. I really look forward to the day when we don't have to have, you know, flags anymore about work that is deviating from mm-hmm. the traditional thing and that we can be in this excitement over different styles and not need someone to be a tour guide, you know, of yeah. their experience or, or the world that they're writing about. Right. And also, like, part of me also feels like we do need tour guides always because, like, we've lived different lives and had different experiences, but that that can be like right now to me, it feels like when, when an author of color, like a black author writes and I'm can tell that it's like written for a white audience, that that like makes me burn on the inside. Mm -hmm. It makes me very upset. And I'm, I'm hopeful that one day if a black author chooses to write for a white audience, that that's okay too. You know, yeah. like that they should like that they could be allowed to do that and that I could find that work valuable and not find that work dehumanizing. But like where we are right now, it feel because it's so political. Yeah, it feels right, like right. that choice to write for white people is like somehow a choice to like turn your back on me, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that like, you know, to your point, we don't we don't need tour guides. And if we have them, it's like a creative choice and right. not a like industry choice or something that's forced on them to like sell books yeah. or, or, or whatever that is. to make it is. more Palatable. empathetic or yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. readers can connect to it. <laughs> yeah. All the stupid things. And it's like, I don't know, as a per- like whenever I read those kind of books, I am instantly like, oh. They're writing for white people. Like you mm-hmm. can just, you feel it. That's you the feel truth. It. Yeah. That truth and lying in the writing that we were talking about earlier. Like that's that feeling to me where I'm just like, ugh, this is bullshit. Exactly. And we all know it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then of course those books are like Reese book club picks and all the things. I that know. Make me, they make me them. rage on the inside. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're running out of time. I feel like we almost touched on every single one. We missed a few, but we'll just, sorry, everyone. We're just going to miss a few. Okay. So we usually end here which is what did you think what do you think of the cover and the title Ooh, um i think that this is a beautiful cover oh yeah we have the same one um yeah we have this i think there's only the one i think the hard i think it's did it come out in hardcover i think it was only paperback i'm not sure i don't know um, um, it's red. It has a picture of a young alexander cheese looking at the camera sort of saying like i dare you to fuck with me maybe or yes. also sort of saying like I'm a sad boy or like he's saying it's like saying, nothing and everything it's saying so much yeah yeah um, and then it yeah then you open it and there are all of these photos that are you know from like a strip at a photo booth it looks like um mm-hmm. and I just I love ugh, it's just like such a good I love this design and you yeah you flip to the back and also like the the flap in the back also has more. And I just really love that as a design. I just, I felt like it was just so striking. Yeah. 
I love seeing the young Alexander Chi, like the person that we hear about, you know, and like yeah. seeing seeing this young man in and, the stories. Yeah. You and there's know. there's something so intimate about being in a photo booth. Yeah. And yeah, you know he's that, alone in all of them. Yeah, too. and you know that you have like however like many five seconds to like do something else and for your next <laughs> photo. Yeah. I always love them. I think that there's such a great portrait of a person like what all, all those decisions of five seconds like what you will do yeah. next I feel like do they say so much that's so true and then the title is just one of the titles of one of the essays um and I think it's a great it's it's a it's a good title for what this is mm-hmm. um yeah it tells think- you it tells you that it's going to be a book about writing and that it's a little bit of a how-to um, and that there's autobiography and and that there's autobiography, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think it's I think it's a pretty spot on package for me. Like you know, the red is the red is good. Like a red book always catches your eye. You know, like yes. there, it's a very well done, like sleek little moment. So I love that. Was there anything else we did not talk about that you feel like we absolutely can't leave here without talking about? Um. I think, I mean, maybe just, can I read a little bit of the ending? I love the ending so much. Yes, I feel like we have to talk about the last essay for a second. Yeah, go Um, on. Speak to your dead, write for your dead. Tell them a story. What are you doing with this life? Let them hold you accountable. Let them make you bolder or more modest or louder or more loving, whatever it is, but ask them in, listen, and then write. And when war comes and make no mistake, it is already here. Be sure you write for the living, too, the ones you love and the ones who are coming for your life. What will you give them when they get there? I tell myself I can't imagine a story that can set them free. These people who hate me, but I am writing precisely because one did that for me. Yeah. And I just I love that, you know, as a as a parting kind of gift and thought. And I know that we were talking about this in our last chat together about um thinking of yourself as part of a larger context and mm-hmm. how that means mm-hmm. looking to the past and then looking present and then to the future as well. Yeah. I just love that line so much or those lines together. Yeah. And like, again, this, like we were talking about last time, this responsibility to the dead, you know, in this, in this essay, he talks, he talks about, you know, what would, what stories would you write for the dying? And if you were dying, what stories would you want? to be told or tell. Mm -hmm. And I just think like, again, I mean, all of this sort of circles back, right? Like that it is political, that it is a choice, that, that your life is meaningful and it's your responsibility to tell these stories and be responsible to these people that you've known and loved and all of this stuff. Like I think this last essay again, was one of my favorites because it really tied in everything and like really made sense mm-hmm. of what his purpose, his reason for yeah. writing and being here. And I, yeah, um, I think it also kind of, um, you know, clarifies like when we read what that is about, you know, like mm-hmm. when we really kind of engage with the story, why that feels so urgent and why that feels so important. And that kind of act that you have as a reader to, to read something and be very moved by it and then try to find the next person and say like, you must read this. And I think it is, right. it's kind of like born from that urgency of um, being aware that our time is so limited and that stories can breathe so much space into that time and just yeah. like really make us better and just change us in, in ways that are surprising. And then we just like want to share that with, with everyone. Yeah. My personal life mission is pressing really good books into people's hands, right? Like that feeling. And like the right book into the right person's hand yes. to like an- unlock something, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. This was great. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for doing this with me. I like the book more now after talking to you about <laughs> so it. Um, and I like the book. I just it's not a book for me, I think, yeah. is what it was. Like I yeah. love I can respect it. I can understand it. Like I can go with it, but it doesn't like tap into my core being in the way that I think if you're a writer, it you probably will, yeah. feel like it, full. Like, it taps yeah. into all of the parts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, Ingrid, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I loved having all of these conversations with you. This was so lovely. Same, same, same. And everybody else, 
Oh, everybody else, listen to the end of the episode to find out next month book club pick. And we will see you in the stacks. All right, everyone, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Ingrid Rojas Contreras for returning to the show. And now I can officially announce our book club pick for the month of September. It is The Trees by Percival Everett. It's a literary thriller that explores the legacy of lynching in the United States. I could not be more excited. If you listen to next week's episode, you'll find out who our guests will be for the September 28th discussion of The Trees. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, the This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.